You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 193 is Peter Case. He started his recording career in 1976 with The Nerves, which morphed into The Breakaways. Each of those involved other singer-songwriters. He became the sole frontman in The Plimsolls, which put out two albums in the early 80s. You're now listening to A Million Miles Away, their biggest hit from Everywhere at Once, 1983. He then went solo, and I mean fully solo. Most of his shows are entirely by himself, just him and his guitar. He's released 16 solo studio albums. We'll be discussing Have You Ever Been in Trouble, the opening track from the new one, Dr. Moan, then looking back to Every 24 Hours from Let Us Now Praise Sleepy John from 2007, and then all the way back to When You Find Out by The Nerves from their self-titled EP that was 1976. We'll conclude by listening to anything from the 1995 album Torn Again. For more information, please see petercase.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to this podcast feed, even if you're listening to this through the Partially Examined Life feed or somewhere else. Or you can get the ad-free version along with my detailed song breakdown episode notes. That's at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will play a little bit of A Million Miles Away by the Plimsolls from Everywhere at Once, 1983. The hit that got you on the map. We're going to get pretty quickly to the new one. Of course, it's an extensive journey from there to here. I will refer folks to the uh, Peter Case A Million Miles Away documentary. Do you know what's the release date of that? May 31st, end of May, it looks like. Any words of introduction to where you're at with this new album, Dr. Moan, and the single here that we're going to hear, Have You Ever Been in Trouble? Sort of as that relates to the journey to get here. Well, it's hard to just describe it like that, but you know, I've been made a lot of albums, and this is the first one where I've done all the songs on the piano. I played piano when I was a kid. I wrote songs on the piano in 1970. One of those songs is on the last album I did, Midnight Broadcast. And all during the years, even with the plimsolls, I played B3, and I played Wurlitzer and different pianos, clavinet on the plimsoll stuff a little bit. This is the first time I've made a record all featuring me on the piano. I love piano. It's like it's a percussive instrument as well as like an instrument that is easy to orchestrate big sounds with. And so you can play way down on the bass and you can rock and roll down there and then you can play like some, you know, real high things. You've got quite a range. It's almost like having an orchestra at your fingertips, but it's a piano, not a synthesizer orchestra. So it's a different kind of thing. I love piano. I love one of my greatest loves is like Boogie Woogie and Fats Domino and Jimmy Yancey, Fats Waller and Thelonious Monk. Gospel, yeah, to a certain degree. I like Paul Griffin, you know, who played with Bob Dylan. And I like Bob Dylan's piano playing a lot. A lot of different piano players. So it was inspired by that. I was locked in a room with a piano during the pandemic. That's partly why it happened. Yeah. Any thoughts about the theme before we hear it of Have You Ever Been in Trouble in particular? The song speaks for itself. All my songs speak for themselves, man. If I had a better way to say it, I would have said it in the song. (laughs) The best way I could say it is in the song, but it is the first track on the record. It's the first one we cut, the first one I wrote, and it was the one that sort of tells you sometimes when you're starting a record, you get a feeling of like, we're doing it now, you know? This is it. We're going there. And so that's what I felt like when I wrote this song. Have 
Have you ever been in trouble? Do you remember how it feels? Are you living in a bubble? Caught between the wheels? Tonight you feel the danger rising on the wind. Tearing out your jacket, ripping at your skin. Have you ever been in trouble? You slip by somehow Have you ever been in trouble? The kind you're in right now Well, that's freedom down the You see someone coming or something you can't do Flip a coin forever Hands up, dance Winner gets the upstairs room The loser cries and wins And sorely grieves How do you be Have you ever been abandoned? Did you ever run at night? The streets are maze beneath your feet, your heart concealed in fright. You pray in desperation, left the Holy Ghost. I'm coming down the alley just like a mega dose. Have you ever been in trouble? Used to be somehow. Have you ever been in trouble? The kind you're in right now. Where there's freedom down the Someone come here Something you can do There's one thing I know For sure is real The minute you surrender The wounds begin to heal It's your reprieve How do you
So I wrote apocalyptic piano chords, that nice dissonance to get us going. Any thoughts of like, is that just something your fingers stumbled over or are you quoting something in particular? Do you have any idea? It's kind of a heavy use of the piano in a way. Mm -hmm. Somebody said uh, recently that it's uh, sort of heavy, you know, like it's that like just like a light tinkling piano thing. It's got kind of an aggressive attack to it. I have an instinct for playing live and I have an instinct for music that comes from the things I saw when I was a kid. And one of the things I saw when I was a kid was a great performer, Paul Butterfield. Mm -hmm. And Paul Butterfield band would just come out and they would just blow the roof off the place. And I also saw Simon and Garfunkel. Some of these people, they just had such an instinct for like how to project music and their particular kinds of music. Well, I have an instinct for that too. And so like I just sit down and like I just feel it. Like I, it's almost like you have a rangefinder. Or you have fingers going out into the world, sensors going out. You get on this wavelength with music and then you can just feel what it comes through you, you know, and you can feel what goes out to people. I guess that's where that music came from. Well, and it's kind of fun, you know, I've heard Peter Buck of R.E.M. sort of switch to mandolin because the guitar was getting too comfortable. Like, I want to I play something that I don't quite know what I'm doing because then you stumble across things more easily. Obviously, you've had a piano in your life for a long time. Hey, every time I do anything, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, I could picture you, you're talking about us doing this song in particular, like standing up. Like, it's very percussive. It does not sound like, I took lots of piano lessons and I have my perfect posture that they told me to, and the wrist is no, exactly no, the right angle. No, I, no, I would never approach anything like that. <laughs> my heroes are rock and roll piano players, blues piano players, you know, boogie woogie piano players. My big sister played stride piano when I was a baby. Mm. So I grew up with it. I got it in my bones from growing. She used to babysit me when I was a little kid and she'd be playing piano, you know. Um, she could play some really marvelous kind of jazz, like rock and real rock and boogie woogie and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, those are my roots in the 50s. I mean, I got kicked out of piano lessons after a little while. We got in trouble with the piano lessons. <laughs> I'm pretty much self-taught. I've played well, with people and I pick things up from people. Yeah, I also like, I mean, you were talking about it as an orchestra, the fact that, I mean, you're not using like the very highest notes in this one, but like you're using left hand very low. Like this is lower than like taking my electric bass up to it to compare exactly how it lines up. But it sounds like you're playing as low as you can get on this piano, on this song in particular. Maybe. <laughs> it goes right down there. Yeah, you need an 88 key keyboard. Piano, you want it to be moving like this when you play, you know. You want it to be going from side to side with your hands. If you're doing that, you're doing a good job. Hopefully most of this record has places where it like does that. And so to a certain degree, I'm not I am not really off and up on the top keys yet, but I am down on the very low keys and I move it up into other registers on there when I play, you know. It seems like a big theme from watching the documentary is that you'd set up this expectation early in your career. It's the new John Lennon that you know, that you can do this really effective straight ahead sharp lyrics, rock and roll stuff, but then sort of it threw people for a loop or what, whatever. The majority of your career has been then delving more into the folk area or other, I don't want to say traditional musics. That's weird. But, you know, this clearly has a lot of, I can't say my blues literacy is strong enough. I'm hearing Dr. John, like in your vocal tone and stuff like here. Do you know what you're channeling when you're playing the piano this way, what in referencing Dr. John or whatever, that he's in a tradition. I don't know, sometimes as somebody who's attracted to kind of power pop straight ahead, like, you know, I don't think of that as a genre unless you're doing it sort of very straight ahead, like actually imitating early Beatles. But of course, it's just as formulaic or something as blues. You got some self-awareness there because like, yeah, power, <laughs> pop is like a, power pop is an ethnic form of music. It's white teenagers generally love that music and, and uh, was performed by all kinds of people, but 
it was a very brief part of my career where, you know, I never really thought about power pop. Like that, that word didn't even exist sure. when the nerves were coming up. And the people started calling us that and we would like, you know, power pop, you know, really? We did never think of ourselves as that. The whole point of having musical influences is just that you learn from them. But the whole point of being a musician is to become yourself. And it's difficult to become yourself and to be yourself with all the forces and the genre names and the border guards that come up and attack you for crossing the border. But you try to find who you really are and you try to sing something that's really authentic, that really feels real and doesn't feel like you're just coloring inside the lines, you know. And so that's why you go on an experimental. Everything's experimental because everything is you trying to find out what's real and what's good. It's not just copying something that's already happened. So that's the whole point is to do things that are new and that are different and that push the envelope because now we're in the moment. It's now. And we're doing new things and songs about now. And that's what this album is. It's songs about now. And all those influences are real. I mean, you know, I listened to Dr. John in 1973. I was a street musician, but we had a cassette player. We had three cassettes. We had Exile on Main Street. We had Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? And we had Dr. John, Right Place, Wrong Time. We just played those over and over and over again. Those three. You know, if I have a gospel influence, it's from Marvin Gaye and also from the Rolling Stones. You sure. know? There's a lot of gospel on Exile on Main Street, you know, Shine a Light and a lot of the different things. And so the songwriting and everything. And then somewhere during that year, Bob Dylan came out with Billy the Kid <laughs> soundtrack. And that we got that one, too. And then I played that a million times. And that songwriting really uh, hit me, too. I mean, I grew up on Bob Dylan. And that music, the Beatles, uh, Stones, Animals, and all that kind of music. That was the first impetus. Was The first feeling was to like play music like the Beatles or the Animals or something when I was in the Nerves and the Plimsolls. But before that, when I was on the street, I was playing blues and rock and roll and like acoustic music and Mississippi John Hurt and all that. I got into that, too. Kids would get into that music back then. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between the 60s and the 80s or something. It's like kids were like really, you were exposed and it was really cool, like Muddy Waters and all this stuff. They were just part of the, you know, you would get a Hit Parader magazine, which would have like the monkeys on the cover. And you'd go in there and it would have Jeff Beck talking about his favorite records. And Jimmy Page would talk when he was in the Yardbirds would say, Muddy Waters is my favorite record. And Jeff Beck would say, you know, Les Paul, you know, listen to Les Paul. And like, I listened to all the stuff that these guys told me to listen to. It was the pursuit of music and the world and the unraveling the world music, the music of the world, not world music, but like just music, you know. And so that's the whole idea here. What we're trying to do is like do something new. And like when you hear John Coltrane doing something that like everybody, oh God, John Coltrane. I love John Coltrane. I learned how to play piano in a lot of ways uh, in a church that did perform music of John Coltrane's like Love Supreme. And like I would play it every week for a couple hours in church when I was in town on the piano. I was the piano player in this band for a while. Sort of a substitute piano player, but... Okay, so you actually did get comfortable and had to do this live and it wasn't just... So it was returning to something old rather than the thing I was describing of, let me play an instrument that I'm not as comfortable with or... I can play piano, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell by on the record, but every week for two hours, I would sit there with these with a band. I'm like, I play rhythm piano, basically, backing complement piano. And we learned a bunch of different tunes by Coltrane and other people and played them. And I got strength in my hands and ability to perform and you know you need to go play live like i come from a background i always play music live in different formats you know like i'm a live musician 
I would think that's part of discovering what actually feels natural, what actually feels like you is how much is that related to like what you feel you can stand in front of people and address to them. That's right. Of course, performing, you know, a lot of people do plays. They're reading other people's stuff. They're, you know, performing. There's nothing inherently self-expressive about that, you know, that it has to be completely new, completely like one of the easiest things is to play covers or whatever. Yeah, but even when you're playing covers, like you expose yourself, you know, people can see your soul. If you play any cover song, you know, you, your own personal version of it will come out. Even if you're trying super hard to sound like someone else, it shows, you know. But even when we were doing power pop, like what's called power pop, when we were writing the songs on the plimsolls and the nerves, we played those songs acoustic when we wrote them. We would just sit in a room and play them. You would know the whole song was there when you just played it on an acoustic guitar and the drummer would be beating on the phone book. And we would just sit there and play it like that. And you could play it to people and they would know it was a good song. You didn't need the production. That's always been my key for songwriting is that you can just sit in a room and play it for somebody, even if it's just like a beat with a voice over it. That's always been my concept. Well, any thoughts about your production choice on this song that you've got some? Is that also you playing the organ, the overdub there? No, no, no. That's Chris Joyner. Okay. He's a great organ player. He plays with a lot of different people. I think he's with Ben Harper right now. He played with Ricky D. Jones and a lot of other people. He's, a, I believe, a Berkeley music graduate. He's just a great player. You've got that. You've got the upright bass. But nothing else, not even like minimal percussion. Piano is percussion. I consider the piano like a 88 tuned drums. Every piano key is a drum. It's a hammer. That's what they call them on piano, hammers. A lot of my favorite records, like they don't have drums on them. Like rock and roll was invented. The first rock and roll record, some people say, is it That's All Right Mama by Elvis Presley. That doesn't have drums. You don't miss it. And I don't think you miss it anywhere on this album either. All right. So I know you're very well known for your lyrics. The lyrics are pretty carefully crafted in the Dylan tradition. How long are you spending? Like, is this a sit at the piano and just get this out? Or is this, you've got a notebook that you are collecting things? What's the overall technique? Well, I got hundreds of notebooks and scraps of paper and notes on my phone and uh, stuff written on newspapers and uh, things you just say to people that get caught. You just remember them because you say them over and over again. And then sometimes you just sit there and, the, uh, you know, you speak in tongues and things just come through you. So that a lot of music just comes from that. But, you know, the music sometimes on these would come first. Very rarely on this record did the lyrics come first. Okay. It sounds like you had this sort of apocalyptic minor sort of gospely, you know, jazzy thing. And that it, that suggested things to you. I don't know, by the end, despite the name of the podcast, if we don't want to go sort of carefully through lyrics or whatever, if it seems like it ruins it or the song speaks for itself, that's totally fine. I can talk about it. I mean, but I don't really want to unpack it because it ruins the song for people. So, you know, people need to find their own way into records and into songs and they don't need the artist telling them what. Because a lot of times, like if you're the artist, you don't even know the things that other people hear in it. People find their own meanings in music. Artists don't know what they're doing a lot of the time. As a listener then, when I actually sat down and looked at the lyrics as they had been sent to me, I was kind of surprised at, you know, I was thinking gospel, that there's sort of things sound a little sermony in terms of just the, you know, the fire and brimstone air about it. But then it's sort of gotten more explicit to the point of the minute you surrender, the wounds begin to heal. Like that could be in an actual sermon. <laughs> but whether that was your intention or not, I mean, it was much more sort of explicitly religious than I expected or, you know, that I picked up on. There's no religion in there. Nothing religious on, on any of that. What religion would it be? Like music and people's hearts and like everything you feel about life is on a spiritual plane. You know, love is spiritual, you know, so that's what it's about. 
the moment you surrender, um, the wounds begin to heal. I mean, it is what people bring to it. For you, it's religious because maybe you were religious when you were a kid. I wasn't. Well, and I certainly associate that whole... What religion were you? I went to, you know, like United Church of Christ, Presbyterian kind of as a kid, something that I broke away from early enough. But there's something in the dark night of the soul, sort of like that's when the best songwriting happens, at least for me. I think so, too. And like, if that's real, then you come to these places where you either surrender and there's wounds and, and all that, you know. And so you're in a real spiritual world, but it's not a sermon, man. A sermon's a sermon. This is rock and roll. I mean, a lot of the best rock and roll you could say is sort of a sermon. Let it be by the Beatles, you know, it's a gospel song, I suppose. And I mean, Bob Dylan actually did preach for like three albums and continues to do things that sound like that because you're talking about real things in the world, like why people are alive and why they get in trouble and why they get healed. You know, these are like serious issues. Religion tries to deal with it, but like, this isn't religion. This is music. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I didn't pick up on it in just casually listening to it the first couple of times before I saw the lyrics in front of me. Yeah, you know, it was more just the feeling. Are you trying to like craft a narrative such that the third verse makes sense as something that's running through the character's head or something after the previous verse? Or is it just all, with this song in particular at least, things that suggest the mood and they come out as they come out and you don't really overthink it? Or are you the kind of guy that's like, hey, you know what, let me move that verse later because... I want to have some more build. Like, are you thinking in terms of like constructing a drama in that way? I don't know. None of that really rings a bell. At one point, this song was about 45 minutes long. Really? Oh, okay. So there are written verses or was it just that you were jamming on this, that this was such a, just a fruitful. No, no. And there was written verses where you could sing one after another with no instrumental breaks and do it for 45 minutes. I work on lyrics a lot, but then, you know, who's got 45 minutes to listen to something? <laughs> you, know? you know, you try to put the things in there that, like, you know, cut through, you know. Do these live on as they develop, as you're playing them live, such that, you know what, let's do the 10-minute version of this tonight. Or those banished verses are just gone. They're out of your mind. They're not part of the song. I don't think about them, but, you know, it's possible that they could show up in that song, I suppose. I have done stuff like that. Like, I, there's a song I have called Ain't Gonna Worry No More. That, too, was a long, really long song. I have long other verses for that, and I use them in different places. That one I do. Like, that's got just a bunch of verses that I like to bring into it. And I have this other song. If you go on Spotify, there's like a special edition of Highway 62, and there's a song there called Magic in Reverse. And that had like 45 minutes or 60 minutes of lyrics. Just went on and on and on. And like, I never even ended up really putting it on an album. That's on the expanded edition. You know, we didn't even put it out. Like I worked and worked and worked on it and I didn't put it out. I like to get the songs so they get my attention. If they get my attention and sometimes there's something in it for me, then I know that maybe other people will find that too. If it's something that I already know exactly what I'm going to say when I start to say it, it bores me. I like things to surprise me. There's a great poet called, uh, you know who Lorca is? And you listen to read his thing and he has this advice for poets. Put some clouds inside your poems. So it rains once in a while and they stay green. And so there's a point to that too. Like everything doesn't have to just be crystal clear, you know, and scientific. But I don't ever just do things just for mood. No, I don't ever write like that. Well, let's get the second song out there so we can keep talking about these themes here. Every 24 hours from Let Us Now Praise Sleepy John, 2007, different, sort of like an English folk influence, a little jaunty 6-8 thing. Is this a duet with a blues legend? Who's playing the other guitar? Is it the same person who's singing back up on this with you before we hear it? Well, Richard Thompson is the other instrumentalist on that, and he sings on it. 
I'll tell you what happened was we were finishing the record and I knew Richard Thompson a little bit. So we asked him, would he come down and play? You know, we didn't really think he would. But he said, yeah, and he, he had tomorrow open. <laughs> and so then we, were, then we were like, oh, great. Richard Thompson's going to come tomorrow. We're finishing the record. and He's going to come. And then I go, I don't have a song. What song are we going to do? We're going to do a cover? Oh, man, it'd be great if we had like a new song. So I had about 24 hours to write a song. And so I went back to my kitchen and I made some coffee and I got out my guitar and I came up with that song into the evening after drinking about two or three pots of coffee and wrote that song. And I hadn't, the only person I ever played it for was my wife, Denise. And then I went to the session, you know, she said it was okay. So I took it to the session the next day. And the second person I played it to was Richard Thompson. And I was kind of nervous because I admire him a lot. And he's a great musician. And he just learned it right away. And we played it several different times with completely different versions. And he said he really liked it. And then he, I said, can you sing on it? And he, sure. <laughs> he's a very quick take on things. And so Richard played on that track. Driving 12 hours after the show Hit the border at dawn and kept going As the moon crossed my path I was doing the math Will I make it? There's no way of knowing I should have called home before she went to sleep I prayed the Lord for her soul to keep Tomorrow will tell who's been tending the sheep the world turns every 24 hours Ah, it turns every 24 hours Ah, it turns every 24 hours Bridge in the black squalling rain I could see them but just for an instant The wind all the morning roared like a train And the skyline was lost in distance Who moved the furniture, who hit the light Everything's changing but nothing seems right I thought I was smart but that was last night The world turns every 24 hours Blocked by the flood and the crash site The cop waved me through And I thought of you 
Across ten thousand miles of moonlight Our life's opportunity moves with great speed Pay close attention, it's not guaranteed We live in a world of wonder and greed And it turns every twenty-four Yeah, that completely makes sense now that, you know, because of course he's well known for, so you were actually had in mind his Fairport convention is his history with British folk music in coming up with, let's do something, you know, that you could do a, I don't know, my daughter was in Irish dance for a while. So I guess this is a, this is a jig. It's very similar to another song I recorded a number of years before in certain ways, the song I have called Crooked Mile. But the difference between it is I took the blues out of Crooked Mile. I do know that Richard doesn't really play blues, and I didn't want to play blues with him at all. But I didn't think it's, I don't, dun, 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 you know, I didn't think it was a jig, but maybe it is. It's in 6-8. That's. Uh... I didn't really think about English folk music, but I've been listening to that kind of British folk music since I was a kid. I love Bert Yansh. You should check him out. I, he's really great. And he made records in the 60s. I used to listen to the folk music radio show when I was a teenager in Buffalo. And this guy would play all the great, he would play Joni Mitchell the first time you ever heard her. And he played Burt Yanch and I loved him. That's a big kind of influence in general. Before, I, I didn't ever really listen that much to Fairport, though I do love Richard's records with Linda. And I listened to a lot to those. And I, I mean, I like Fairport, but I, I've just never really listened much to them. But I love Richard and Linda on Hannibal Records and those records they made over there were great. So yeah, I guess on some level I knew that it would fit. It would something like that would fit with. I knew I wasn't asking Richard to do something he wouldn't wouldn't be into doing. You know, I didn't even really think about it. I just felt it. And is he doing most of the soloing on this, or is this passing back and forth? I mean, you're both pretty active. I wasn't sure if there was even two or three guitars here. You know, I kind of regretted that mm. a little bit afterwards that I played so much while I had Richard Thompson down there. But <laughs> he never stopped playing. We just there like I think they're they're mixed left and right. And I forget who's on the left and who's on the right, but you can tell when it's him because he, he's Richard. But we're both kind of playing and stepping out of the way and tossing it back and forth. It's a kind of like a jazz record where the people trade fours or something. We're kind of, we kind of throw it back and forth a little bit. Well, and there are a lot of blues licks in there, but then there's also, you know, playing the melody again, you know, doing that sort of more traditional folk thing. I recall seeing him opening for Crowded House doing, you know, just him and his guitar and it was just mind boggling in terms of how much he could hold down that, you know, as a finger picker, it's just one of the best. 
I've ever seen and could sing while doing it, you know. Yeah, that's what I do, too. I, I go out and I do a whole night of music just solo. And, and so I've always done that with the guitar. I haven't been taking a band on the road for years. I go out and play solo and I've opened for every kind of band solo from Crowded House. I've opened up for a solo and I've opened up for The Replacements and Husker Du at one point and uh, a lot of different things, Los Lobos and all these bands that when I used to open up a lot of shows and I would play solo and I, I could always hold, I could hold the gig down because it goes all the way back to like that experience of seeing the great musicians I saw when I was a kid. Well, and this has that fun live feel, like even though obviously the guitar playing is very tight some of the times, as I was listening closely, it's like you start to sing a line and then you stop. Like, oh, I guess we aren't singing that one. Or he does that. Or, you know, there's a few little things like the structure wasn't completely worked out. So it just, you know, makes it feel like this is a rehearsal or a, some kind of experience and not like a carefully crafted. The other take was completely different and really just about as good. You know, you could have used either one. But at one point I jump up and then he just immediately jumps up like he's so quick, you know, in his harmony. And so I kind of jump up a little bit more uh, vocal edge, and then he jumps up above me. He does a really great job of that. So sort of comparing and contrasting in terms of the lyrics with the previous song, I mean, this one, this is a road song, right? So this could also go on for 40 minutes if you wanted to, because it's just like... If you wanted to, you could have every city that you've ever been to in there, yeah. <laughs> Describing, you know... It was actually one particular trip that one was written about, but whatever, you know. It doesn't obviously get as Dark Night of the Soul <laughs> as the previous song. The other one is definitely darker, but it has that feeling of, you know, I'm in a hotel. Who moved the furniture? Who moved the light? There's disorientation of the road. And you made it, though, by talking about this wondering greed turns the world every 24 hours. It sort of like gives it a little more of a, you know, like you're characterizing, you're giving a, a slogan for the experience and relating it to something. It's not just like, and that's life on the road, you know, which could... <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. But the, the whole point of it really is that the world turns every 24 hours. And so once again, we're like, you know, you could say that's like sermonizing or something, but it's not. You know, it's saying you're living today. Today's the only day. Everything changes, you know, live your life today. And it's a picture of how much things can change in one day, really, of, of all the different things that are going on everywhere. Was there a specific like, you know, you're talking about the way through town was blocked by the flood and a crash site. Like I recall doing one of these with James McMurtry. And he had wrote a song like this. And it was specifically like, I'm in the car and I'm describing the rattling in the dashboard. Like it was all very, that's the way he comes up with lyrics is just observing things, very mundane things often. So was this like a specific thing or was this just, you're telling a story in your imagination here? Well, everything specific that I write about, you know, most of it, you know, is from a real specific picture in my mind. Okay. I just meant it, like an incident. The road was shut down by the crash site. You know, that's like a real particular thing that you see if you're out there driving around, you see the crash site and the road being, and then, so you're just driving by, but you know, somebody else's life might've just ended or something, you know, you don't, it's very, uh, yeah, I guess that is the linking part to the conclusion here. The life's opportunity moves with great speed. Pay close attention. It's not guaranteed, you know, that you could die at any point. Whereas the beginning of the song is more, I've been on the road a lot. All the hotels are blending together. I don't think there's any hotels in the song, is there? But Oh, I guess I was just interpreting who moved the furniture, who hit the light, everything's changing, but nothing seems right. And that's just in general, who moved the furniture. That is sort of a general line, you know. Um, when you're waking was, up in a new spot. You know, who moved the furniture, who hit the light. We were out there in really radical weather. You ever been in those rainstorms where you can't see anything all of a sudden? And like you almost get in a wreck because there's so much rain, you have, you have to pull off to the side of the road. That's what that was like. All right. So this whole thing is actually a pretty sculpted progression through the verses. Like it doesn't sound as we're describing it more. 
it doesn't sound like you could add five more verses or you certainly wouldn't want to. That would Well, I could have because the tour <laughs> kept on going after we got to that place in the last verse. But, you know, <laughs> I left Toronto and I drove south is what it was. But that would have been a little anticlimactic if you're like, and you could die any day. And now I'm going to tell you about next week, you know, <laughs> or you should write some songs, man. You think a lot. Do you write songs? Yeah. Why else would I do this? Well, why else would you do it? Yeah, I know. You must be a songwriter. You're really thinking about it. The thing about songs like this is, and like they tell you, like one of the lessons you learn from movies is they used to tell people, throw away the first reel. You jump to the motion, you know, leave the story behind. Just jump right to the cut where the chase starts. And so that's what we did in this one. So you don't set up all the precursors. You just go right, you know, driving 12 hours after the show, made the border at dawn. Like it jumps right in, you know. That's one of the tricks really is to throw away the setups on things. And have you ever been in trouble at sort of in second person starting a narrative? But that kind of comes in the second half of the first verse. Tonight you feel the danger rising on the wind, tearing at your jacket, ripping at your skin. So that it starts setting up. But it, you start off with the, have you ever been in trouble? Do you remember how it feels? Like it's a completely non-narrative thing is my, is my point. That just, just talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. So everything, see, everything's a narrative if you're talking. If you're talking to somebody, who's talking and where are they talking and what's going on? So if you say, if you've ever been in trouble, we're, we're leaving out the whole setup and we're just saying it's one person talking to another person. You know, you don't have to set it all up. Okay. So that's the omitted narrative is you, you actually have in mind, or do you like, if you have something in second person like that, you know, there's a lot of times where it's a love song. So the characters are me, the singer, or, you know, whatever character you're making the singer to be, whatever aspect of yourself and the person you're singing to. Or you could be singing to the audience. It could be sermonizing in that way. Or If you're singing to the audience, does it always have to be sermonizing? It's not sermonizing necessarily to sing to the audience. Lecturing. I, I, lecturing. I, none of these it's words are lecturing. good. None of these. Uh, doing lecturing. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know, man. I don't think I'm a lecturer. I'm an entertainer. You know, we're trying to entertain people with music and you try to weave mystery and music together. If I was lecturing people, it would be boring. You know, it's not a lecture. A lecture is like when somebody just goes, you know, and tells you a bunch of shit. I'm not telling you shit. I'm saying, have you ever mm-hmm. been in trouble? Mm-hmm. That's not a lecture. Do you remember how it feels? You either do or you don't. And it's like everybody's been in some kind of trouble. So it's not a lecture. The lecturer does come out. Have you ever been in trouble? We don't have good words, I feel like, for addressing a group with a personal question like that, right? Because if you're having a conversation with an individual, that makes sense. But if you're, you know, on a stage, you know, you can't actually have a personal one-on-one conversation with every person in the audience. So you have to sort of do this imaginative. Audience members are like, oh, I felt like you sing just to me. And that usually, you know, if you're doing a love song or something, but if you're singing, you know, I love all of you, if you're addressing a group like this, that's why I feel like... We don't if have you good say, words I love for that. all of you. Like you're ba- basically, people are going to think you're full of shit. And so you know, <laughs> we don't go there. You know, we're trying to be particular and direct and talk to people. Now, some people really have the talent to be able to write something or sing something, and people really feel like it's singing them right to them. And that's really what you are going for, is something like that. And there's ways of doing that. But the songs are movies, then you're projecting them with your imagination out into the room and everybody picks it up with their imagination and projects it back into their own heart and mind. That's not a lecture. That's art. In these two songs, at least, even though the lyrics are, there's no cliches, like they're good, strong, strong narrative lyrics, but I'm not detecting a lot of like clever, you know, wordplay, like things that I really don't even understand what that sentence means. You're, you know, there's a triple meaning there and there's, uh, you know, the kind of stuff if you're writing poetry, which is a different 
that's you and the piece of paper. And it's sort of like treating the words as an autonomous thing and you can kind of tweak them and structure them and make them focus on the beauty of the words. I don't know. Do you consider yourself a poet in that sense? I love words. I see the different meanings in words. I love the sound of words. I love everything about words. There's nothing more spiritual than words. Words are what we have to communicate with each other. Words and music are what I work in. So words are half of the words and music. I don't consider myself a poet, but I definitely consider myself a songwriter. And I don't want to waste people's time. So I, I try to put as much in each line and each word and everything. You know, you put as much as you can in there. You're not sitting there putting filler in as much as you can get away from it every sometimes. And good filler is like the art of songwriting too. But like you learn that as you go along. But I don't like things that are just like clever wordplay. Like to be clever wordplay is totally not where it's at as a songwriter. Well, part of it, I was thinking my hypothesis here is that like that you don't like stuff that's not going to actually be understood. Like I want it to be a sentence you've never heard before, but I want you to actually get it. But then I'm looking at the first like I'm not sure what the Bended Avenue exactly. I mean, it's just is that the like the winding road or is there something more specific there? Well, what do you think it means? As I'm now saying it out loud, the like the long and winding road, there's freedom down the Bended Avenue, you know, just life's unforeseeable bended way of going. I mean, that's why it's unforeseeable because of the bends, metaphorically. Again, I don't want to ruin it, or I didn't know what megadose was referring to exactly, other than the feeling of like, you know, something big. Felt the Holy Ghost coming down the alley, just like a megadose, like a large amount of drugs. Like, is that the thought or is you don't like answering these kind of questions? Yeah. I mean, I can't really unpack all that stuff, but it means a lot to me, the whole thing. And I don't want to unpack it because they all, all the words need each other. You know, just let people listen to it. Obviously, you're listening to it. I appreciate that you listening and that you cared enough to talk to me. That means that I'm, you know, I'm on some sort of the right track that you find it interesting. And so that's the whole thing really is that, you know, I hopefully sometimes things don't reach you right away either. Sometimes things hit you later. You know, I've noticed that music can often hit you when you're in a different place than when you first heard it. Like one time Neil Young came out with that record, uh, Rockin' in the Free World. Mm-hmm. And when that came out, I was at home in Los Angeles and I listened to it and it meant nothing to me. I just, I didn't like it. It just sounded trite to me. And then I uh, went over and I played a gig and I had to go on tour in France and I flew over to France. I don't speak French. And I flew over there and then got taken out and I was in Lyon, way out somewhere doing this rock festival solo. And then after the gig, I didn't have any money. I'd flown to France without, I didn't even have time to change any money. I didn't have anything. I was hoping they were going to take care of me at the festival, but the whole festival just shut down. And I was stranded in Lyon in the middle of the night with nowhere to go and no hotel or anything. And so I'm walking down the street in the middle of nowhere. They tell me, well, down the road, about 10 kilometers, there's a place you can stay down there. And, you know, maybe they'll be able to cash a check, you know, right. I had a check from the gig they, and they couldn't cash it. I'm walking down the road in the middle of the night. And I don't know anybody. And I'm in a foreign country and I'm jet lagged. And uh, I really just feel completely weird. And this car full of teenagers pulls over. It's a Citroen. And it's filled with teenagers. And they go, Beatrice. You know, they don't speak English. Huh. You want to ride? We saw you at the festival. I get in the car. And, you know, what the hell, man? And so I get in the car with these kids and we're going down the road and like rocking in the free wheel came on the radio. And I go, that's the fucking best song I've ever heard in my life. I all of a sudden heard it. My heart was so ripped open from being on the street and from being stranded and from being rescued and from the whole thing. And I, I was open to music. And all of a sudden I heard rocking in the free world. Yeah, man. 
what a great song. And so that's an example of things hit you at different places. That's why my last record was called The Midnight Broadcast, because it was inspired by, you know, not just sitting there and listening to a million different records at home in your room, but like I was out there on the road driving in the middle of the night on a long drive in the middle of the night and the radio came on and all of a sudden a bunch of music came on. A lot of the DJ was playing records in the middle of the night that were so beautiful. And there were a lot of them were off records I'd listened to and hadn't really liked. You're in that sensory deprivation tank of the car driving along, you know, with just the glow of the dashboard and this look of the headlights and they're out in the middle and you don't even know where you are and you have a long ways to go. And this incredible radio show comes up. Well, that's what we created on the Midnight Broadcast. So we, we created the whole radio show. I don't know if you've heard that album or not. but yeah. And so that's what that album is supposed to be, is like one of those kind of radio shows. And it's got like ambient music, kind of like Brian Eno-esque kind of ambience. And it's got folk music. And it's got like a rock and roll band on a couple of tracks. And it's got all sorts of different kinds of things, like the radio show would. That's what we we're trying to reach on that one, because hopefully like this record, like people will take it at some point. Like I think that you should only listen to this record at night. And then you listen to it and then, all those different questions you're asking about it, there's no simple answers to everything, you know? But there's just the answer that you hear when you hear it, listen to the music and you let it in. But if you don't let it in, then it doesn't matter because you won't, you don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you create the music to try to open up people's hearts to let something in and they love it. And so the music itself, you know, when you say like, it seems kind of heavy or like, I can't remember what you said about the piano thing, but the whole thing adds up to a, an experience. If people love songs and they love listening to music and it carries them away and makes them think something themselves, you know, a megadose and an alley and all this kind of thing are all different things you may have some sort of uh, relationship to or not. But if, if you start thinking it's a sermon, then we're lost. My trying to walk through a couple of the things that, you know, point out that I, I didn't immediately understand. It was, was just to try to get at. I appreciate it because I think it's very interesting the things you're picking out. It's interesting to me to hear somebody else and how it's hitting them because I haven't really talked to anybody about this like this, you know, so it's interesting. Like I recall Crowded House, Neil Finn complaining that it's been hard, you know, for them to really break big because it's hard to get people to listen to their stuff twice. That if you write with a certain level of lyrical density and you don't just have like, a Million Miles Away is a song that people could get on the first listen. Like it's the single. It repeats this thing over and over again and such that you don't, it can be enriching then to hear it subsequently and hear it in different environments and stuff like that. But it doesn't require that to sort of get it. Whereas I feel like a lot of the stuff, and maybe this is not too presumptuous, sort of the story of why that level of success, financial, you know, why the major labels weren't it did not spin off into the kind of thing that maybe uh, you'd originally envisioned is because like it does require, no, you actually have to listen closely. You have to listen a couple times. It's not just going to be like, I think of Frank Zappa's lyrics as purely theatrical as I'm telling you a story and there are going to be jokes in the story. You probably don't want to hear more than one. Like it's like listening to a stand-up comedy thing more than once. I don't want to hear but, him even once. He most of his <laughs> But good lyrics like, yes, they should be at least suggestive of a mood, if not actually comprehensible line by line the first time. But then, like, you know, like you're saying, the more they echo around or you hear them different, you know, Keep on Rocking the Free World is brilliant because it has, or Born in the USA, a surface level that works, you know, for the catchy pop song. I'm not paying attention at all. But it also, if you're actually listening to it or the seventh time you hear it or whatever, then it like triggers something else. I agree. Did you I, talk to Crowded House? Is that what you said? I have not actually spoken oh, to yeah. Neil yet. No, uh, I would love to do that. what you said at the beginning that you said something about like Crowded House. That, that was Neil Finn explaining in some interview that I heard at some point why, you know, they did not have the storing success after their first big hit. Why? You know, 
because their stuff requires more than one listen, I think was his analysis. People have different ways of justify. I, I don't understand. None of my stuff has ever been famous, so I don't... <laughs> I have no, I, I can't know. say you anything. Know, you just never know, you know, it requires more than one listen. Like, I don't, I don't know, you know, like kids like the million miles away because they thought they were a million miles away from their parents or something. And you see them out there and they'd all be super happy. And then other people would realize that it was a song of really deep alienation. Like it only required one listen to like misunderstand the song, you know, but that was fine with me because it was but the thing I think that really cut it through was just that it had a repeating chorus that went over and over and over again and a lot of catchy guitar licks. And it was a big beat thing. And big beat stuff is what makes it on the radio. You can't just, you know, make a record like I'm making and get like on top 40 radio necessarily. So I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to like play to an audience that I'm creating in an environment for work. I'm creating myself by going on tour and by doing everything I do. You're trying to create your own audience and your own atmosphere, like your own kind of area where you can work. I don't go out and do um, big band shows anymore, and I don't like to. And that's the mainstream of America. That's what it's doing. But I'm not interested in it at this point. So I'm creating this other thing. I'll tell you another thing. At the kind of gigs I do, you can't really do songs like A Million Miles Away for the whole gang. Nobody wants to hear it. It's not the kind of music that the people that come see me play want to hear. It's too thin. I don't know. Have you done an acoustic guitar version of that that adds extra ninth chords and 13th? Something to, I've heard like Nick Kershaw redid his hits using all of his guitar chops so that he could do them solo. And like, anyway. no, I mean, I'm not interested in that kind of shit thrown in like a few ninth chords and stuff. But I've played that song acoustic and people like it. It stands up. And I play Oldest Story in the World too and stuff. But I'm just saying that for a whole diet, for a whole set, you know, for a whole career, it's not what I want to do. I wanted to spend a little time going back in time there. You had picked When You Find Out by the pre-Plimsolls band, The Nerves. I sort of think of The Nerves and then The Breakaways and The Plimsolls as sort of the launching progression of your uh, your band career. That was always all... No, that's not how it went. With The Nerves and The mm. the Nerves and then The Breakaways was The uh, Nerves Without Jack Lee. Right. And then The Plimsolls was going to be a band that like basically did songs like The Nerves, but had a band that could like blow the roof off the place. Because The Nerves were more songwriters, really, and singers than a, like a real rock and roll band. And so that's what The Plimsolls did, was then we put it all together and did that. This is the first song I wrote when I got to California. I wrote it in 1974, I believe. I got to California in 73. Maybe I wrote a couple other songs, but this was the first one that I really liked. And it was the first song that I did with my band, The Nerves. I got to California in 73. Jack Lee and I met out on the street when I was a street singer. He had Hanging on the Telephone, and I had this one. And the EP we put out ended up getting pretty popular. It had Hanging on the Telephone on it, and Blondie covered it. But when you find out, there's a lot of Nerves fans out there, kids, you know, really young kids. We have an audience of 19 to 20-year-old kids who know the words to all these songs. And so um, that was pretty exciting to hear. But yeah, here's when you find out. I tried to explain, but you don't see. No one can give you more love than me. You say you're waiting for just the right one. You'll try to find me when he lets you down. When you find out, I was the one. I was 
did you just take a bass just for this band? Because that's just what this band needed at the time? Pretty much. I mean, I played bass like in a jug band kind of thing in Buffalo at one point, but I didn't even play bass. I didn't even have a bass. I had a guitar and I traded. Jack wanted to play guitar. So I traded, gave him my guitar and he gave me his bass and I started playing bass. It's a very symmetrical, I don't know, do, 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 do. you're kind of repeating the same rhythm and finding a new, it doesn't just follow the route. Like if a cover band played this, it would probably the bass player would just go boom, 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 you know, do it like a 60s band. But you had like a definite, a few more notes than that. <laughs> I was listening. <laughs> You know, I love playing bass. I, it was really fun playing bass, and I wish I still had that bass I played. It's worth twelve thousand dollars now. I sold it for like four hundred. It was a Rickenbacker four thousand five, and it's a hollow body bass. It was such a great bass, but I got rid of it to start playing guitar again. I bought a Tele. The other two guys were already playing together, and they Jack Lee was playing in a band with was already called the Nerves. He had another name for it too, but it was with him and a guy from his hometown named Pat, and they're from Sitka, Alaska. And they came to me and Jack wanted me to join and I didn't want to join, but I went to their first rehearsals and that was in 74. And then I kind of stayed away from it for a while, but then I finally fully joined. I think it might've been 75 or something like that. The band really started in 74 and I was hanging out with Jack and right and learning bass and all that stuff by the end of 74. Then Paul came out, Paul came out, I think in 75. Okay. So, but was this a case you were saying like when you were playing solo, you were doing more bluesy stuff. So was this a case of, this is the kind of music that this band is doing. Let me write some stuff or, or choosing among your repertoire of stuff that's going to fit into this style. When I was a street singer, we had a band on the street and we did like 13 floor elevators and we did country music and we did blue, a lot of blues. And then I also played a lot of 60s songs like Friday on My Mind we used to do and all this kind of stuff. We had pretty tight arrangements for all this stuff. Jack had this vision for like songs should be like two minutes long. And he had this like very definite thing that he was trying to do. And I was on that tip too with When You Find Out and things like that. So I understood that. It wasn't necessarily where I was going, but then I completely dedicated myself to it, to learn the bass and to just totally just focus on that kind of music and learn how to be in a band and how to make music in a band happen. So that, that was like 10 years of my life playing in bands. You know? I didn't even know that this was you singing on this. You know, they're three singer-songwriters and your voice does not sound, you know, exactly like it does even in the Plimsolls. Do you have any idea why, why that's the, it was just you hadn't it needed time to it sounded like you were already playing live a lot before this point. So I'm not sure why there would be such a difference between 76 you and 1980 you, you know, as compared to I don't to think 80. there is. Okay. All right. So it's just my own the whole edge of my voice and the whole thing I'm doing. Oh, we gone when you find out it's going to be pretty hot on you. I mean, that's just like everything I always sang. I mean, it's just my style of singing. I don't, I don't feel like it's any different, really. But it must be because you think it is. But I, I mean, to me, I don't know. Maybe it's because the bands got so much louder. I would start singing louder or something. I, I don't know. Hmm. Yes. No, I think it's the more crackly. In fact, it's when the harmony comes in, which I assume is Jack, not Paul. The fact that there are three of you that can sing. But, you know, maybe part of it is just like I, I sang so much between 76 and, and 79 with the Plimsolls. I was singing with the electric band so much. I mean, obviously everything develops. And so, you know, I mean, now I'm 69 years old, you know or whatever. But, you know, uh, back then I was like 21, you know, my voice sounds really young to me. And then by after playing all those gigs for like, there was a lot of Plimsolls gigs and like maybe you work certain elements of your voice out. But to me, it's it all feels the same. It doesn't feel different to me. So when you look at like the lyrics that you're writing at this time, does that just seem like 
I didn't know what I was doing. That's just, you know, I was just trying to write a song or is it still, this is meaningful and this was referring to a specific situation that you were in or? It was meaningful. Okay. It meant something to me, definitely. I wouldn't have wanted to sing it if it hadn't. You see, that's the problem is you're like, I write songs that don't mean that much to me sometimes, but then you don't want to sing and keep singing them. You know, that's the ones that really come from your heart that are the ones that seem to catch on more. Sometimes that's not true, but but generally that seems true. Has this ever surfaced in a, one of your live solo sets? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, play it all the time. Oh, all right. So this is not, I guess you wouldn't have agreed to talk about it if you, if you had disowned it. I love it. I'm really proud of it. It's like by 1974, I was 20 years, I think I was 19, maybe or 20 when I wrote it. You know, the Beatles, like people, oh, they just made up a bunch of songs. But when you listen to John Lennon and a lot of this stuff, you know, you can tell, you can hear inside there that he's really singing something real, like I'll be back or girl or in my life and all this kind of, you know, they, but even like some of those real silly or, you know, kind of love songs, you know, if I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true? I know that he was singing something real in that song, you know, and so, I mean, I've heard the story about it too, but you know, it's like even silly songs, like people that spend their life singing rock and roll, it doesn't seem silly to them. You know, if you, <laughs> you know, they're real. Right. It's just maybe that's how shallow you are or something when you're a rock and roll singer. But you know, when you find out it was a real thing to me, I was 20, I was just a kid, you know, and, and I wasn't even 21 yet. Yeah. And the more you write, the more you run out of personal stuff like i just don't write that much anymore because i'm not a young angsty person and there are only so many songs i want to write about a young angst filled romantic out seeking a mate or whatever you know i'm comfortable enough and i don't want to keep writing songs about being a middle-aged vaguely depressed person or what <laughs> like oh, I, I write a couple of those but like otherwise if I, it seems like pretty normal pattern to get more kind of literary like, all right, if you're writing about other people's experiences or imagined experiences or stuff you read in the newspaper or then there's just no end of stuff you could write about. But like I had very high standards, high standard when I was young in terms of this has to be a personal expression of, you know, I need to really feel it. And so if it's just like a little joke thing or whatever, then like, yeah, OK, I don't want to sing that over and over again. That is the challenge, man, of continuing to be a songwriter. I totally hear you about that. It really is a turning point as you get older to be able to keep writing. And like one thing that happens is you write about, it doesn't always have to be your story. It could be someone else's story. So I went through some periods like that. I wrote about like the way I saw the country around me, like on Highway 62, you know, and, you know, I felt passionate about it. And I wrote songs about different kinds of issues, but I made them personal. And there are some songs there on that record also about my personal life, but it's not from front to back, all songs from my personal life, you know? That is hard to do as you get older. And being vaguely depressed is something I'm also experienced in, you know, maybe more than vaguely depressed. I struggle with different things to keep myself out of that kind of problem. Hopefully writing the song itself is therapy. <laughs> that is how you keep... Yeah, writing songs is fun. And then, you know, hopefully you can create something beautiful that you like. I like to read a lot of things. You know, I read a lot of writers that different kinds of writing and stuff. It's interesting to read people as they get older. You know, it's tricky to remain being an artist to still care about it. And every once in a while, like somebody older, like really makes a great record, like Bob Dylan made Time Out of Mind and that other one that he put out around that edge. And like, you know, those things are inspiring, you know. Or Van Morrison's another example. It's tricky when people... What you can write about as you get older that you really care about. You got to have things that you still really care about. But that enforces you. Per See, the whole thing is, is you, like you personally have to grow. 
you personally have to change. Like the whole thing about songwriting is it's about yourself, really. You you can write the song. You don't have to think so much about the songs. You have to think about your life and like just trying to like stay in a, a vital place. And it's hard, especially in America, like the way everything's structured all the time and the isolation that's structured into uh digital living and capitalist kind of problems, you know, economic problems and stuff, man, you, it's very hard to stay inspired and to feel like there's possibilities of things you can do. But like one of the things that's interesting, and like I got into it way back when, but I think about it now, is my heroes were poets and blues singers because they didn't have to clear this big bar of success. You just showed up and did it for your life. And that's what you did. You know, music's my my life, man. I mean, it's just it's part of my like well-being. You know, it's just my life. You know, it's my it's my life's blood. It's the thing that keeps me happy. So <laughs> I keep playing to, you know, a lot of these songs are sung to myself in a way to warm my own heart up. And so the first person you have to get off at a show is yourself. You know, you have to sing to make yourself feel warm and, you know, in love with the world or in love with somebody or, you know, you have to keep waking up all the time. Like the things you were doing a few years ago don't work. It has to be today. Like life is only in the 24 hours that we're here present right now, really now, now, this is the only life there is. Everything else is just in our minds. Like the nerves don't even, they don't exist. You know, there's a record, but there's no nerves. It's only right now. You know, it exists. There's no crowded house. It's like right now, you know, Peter Case only here talking to you. This is the this is all there is of my career and your career and everything. It's just right here. You know, this is all we've got. And so that's the most encouraging thing and also the most terrifying thing. You know, it's such a drag. You know, there's a song by Barron Whitfield called The Blues is a Thief. I love Barron Whitfield. And he does this song called Blues is a Thief, man. And it's so true, like being depressed and being sad. And it's just such a, it robs our lives of so much meaning. And it's such a drag. And I go there. And hopefully can mine it for some good songs. But often that's right. it's just like. That's right. You can maybe mine it for some, that's what it's only thing it's good for. You, see, and you can reach out to somebody else. Maybe they'll get off on it too, you know. But like, you don't want to write a depressing song. So you got to find a way to like mine it, but like still. You know, that's my belief is like anybody at any age, you, me, anybody, we could all write. That's the great thing about songwriting. It's like you don't need a million dollar budget. You don't need anything. You can just put it all here right now. You know, you don't even need a recording rig or anything. You could just figure you could just somehow get on the wavelength and write the great, you know, the greatest song mark that you've ever written. And then that would be it. Then you if you got yourself in shape to do that, it would just exist. You know, that's the great thing. You start the second before you write it. It doesn't exist. And then after you write it, it does exist. But on the journey there, you know, you write a lot of things that they exist for a second and you forget about them. But then you're hopefully you're on the track to write some things that you really care about. Well, thanks so much for giving me an hour of your precious time. Okay. All right, man. It's been really, my pleasure. Really really. Um, I enjoy talking to you. Going to wrap up just by introducing, I, I got to pick one to send us off on anything from the 1995 album Torn Again. Uh, this is one of those songs that like a crowded house song that's sort of, you know, at least the better ones in their catalog that just, you know, punches me right in the gut that I just, your choice of chords here, your, uh, the way this was put together. I like this one too. Yeah. There's another version of it out there too, like a more electric version mm-hmm. of it that I did with this band I had called The Drawing Blanks, and it's a soundtrack for a movie. It's called Anything Final Credits. I mm-hmm. think you can find it online. Yeah. 
on YouTube. But I enjoyed talking to you, man. I can tell you really care about, you know, songs and you really did want to get inside the lyrics. It's hard for me to want to do that because I feel like it overexposes it. But you ask good questions and you and I can tell you really care about it. And I appreciate that, man. drifting snow The ice in the sun was all our diamonds and gold Walking the lake by the mills Sad smoke Rising from the lies that we told Anywhere you go You'll find trouble With anyone who sees like a dream Anything 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 that you love Will bring you to your knees Waiting outside Silently the street light shine While upstairs in your window They were speaking I do Nothing was real for real Two dimensions till you came down And it came into bloom Anywhere you go You'll find hollow With anyone you try to deceive train to the crossing and risked our satellites we said goodbye that time so how long can we keep living off the fruits of our crime anywhere you go you'll find trouble with anyone who seems like a dream Anything 
Thank you so much to Peter. That was a fairly challenging one, but Peter eventually seemed to appreciate where I was coming from and was one of the few guests that actually volunteered to check out my songs, which is always appreciated, never expected. Now, though I do not share Peter's fascination with the blues that runs throughout his work, when he writes a song like the tune Anything that you just heard, he's just as good as they come. Hope you check out his work at petercase.com. I hope if you are not already subscribed to the Nakedly Examined Music feed, that you do so via one of the links at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, or just look us up on the podcast platform of your choice. I know on Spotify, the only place you find it is stuffed into the Partial Examined Life feed. And on YouTube, you know, don't listen to this on YouTube. They insert their own commercials. I don't make any money off it. It is just somewhere that I can attract new listeners. The place where I would, of course, prefer you go is to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, where you will forevermore be free of ads. You'll get my episode notes. Sometimes, as with my last interview, you get extra footage. And as a general update, you might have noticed before the last interview, there was a three-week break instead of the normal two-week break. I might move to only doing one of these interviews every three weeks, or maybe even one of these interviews every month. I have a lot of podcast irons in the fire, as you may know. And though I love doing these interviews, meeting these musicians, it's been over seven years now of doing them. I'm wondering if I'm just asking the same kinds of questions every time. Now, one thing that would ensure that I really try to stay on an every two-week schedule is if I got, let's say, a dozen more Patreon followers right now, today, after you've heard this episode. You can sign up for just a dollar an episode. You can put a cap on how many dollars per month that is. If I don't put anything out that month, you pay nothing. And of course, you get my entire back catalog ad-free right away for a mere dollar. Or, of course, you could pledge $3 or $5. I'd really appreciate that. That would help three times or five times as much. So I really appreciate any of you that listen to this at all. And I very much appreciate if you then follow up and somehow get money to these artists I cover. But the irritating auto-insert ads that you hear on this show nowadays don't pay that much. So I definitely appreciate you helping out. Now, if you can't or don't want to do that, the other thing you can do is just spread the word about the podcast. Help me double my subscriber numbers. Send the link nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Send this particular episode. Send some other episode that is one of your favorites. I recommend the Robin Hitchcock, the Bob Mould, the Dar Williams. Those are a few standout ones for me. You can also post a nice rating or review on the Apple Podcasts app, the iTunes store, as it used to be called. Or if you listen on Stitcher or Audible or somewhere else, you can post reviews there too. Finally, I did recently finish a song. I didn't do a real recording, but I did a little video of it and put it on Facebook. So you can just look up my name, Mark Linsenmeyer, on Facebook if you want to hear that. I've done the last few songs that way. They'll eventually add up to an album that I'll record, but it might be a while. I hope you are doing well, that you are finding ways to keep creative, to keep your brain alive, to keep out of the doldrums. Spring is finally coming or just arrived. And man, I have been waiting for it. I welcome it with open arms. Please stay well. Keep on music. And this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. I'm a